So for some reason that's not told to us uh, that the disciples at one point in, in their walk with the Lord asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And uh, there's no evidence that they ever asked him to teach them to heal or to cast out demons. He, he did anoint them with that authority. But when it came to praying, they, they would watch him pray and they knew that he spent a lot of time in prayer. And yet, you wonder why he could do anything he wanted to do. But I suppose the answer to why is because he was trying to do everything in the strength of his father and not in his own strength. So he was trying, he set aside his power to live as a person. So he was trying to live like you and I live in complete dependence on the father. And uh, I, I guess that's the answer to why he spent as much time as he did in prayer. Um, but you, you often think, wow, if he needed to pray that much, I wonder, wonder how much we need to pray. Um, but they came to him and they asked him, they said, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know there's two examples of this in the New Testament. One is here in Luke 11, the other's in Matthew 6. And I'm going to be jumping back and forth between the two. I think Jesus taught both of them, and I think he taught them differently, and I think it's deliberate. The uh, Matthew 6 is in association with the Sermon on the Mount. This is in association with a question that was requested of him later on in his career. I don't think Jesus made a mistake. I think this is deliberate, you know. Now, Matthew is interesting. Matthew's rendition of this is interesting because before he begins it, Jesus gives us a couple of qualifiers to our prayer. And the first is pray in private. If you pray in private, you'll be rewarded openly. If you, if you pray to show off to people, you'll have the only reward you're going to get by other people. But if you go into your closet, you know, and you shut the door and you direct God, direct your prayers to God alone, God will reward you openly. That's Jesus telling us that. He also tells us in the next sentence in Matthew, when you pray, don't use vain repetition. So ask once with the assurance that your Father answers your prayers. You don't have to ask over and over and over again. Uh, although if we're really hurting or we're really in pain, we have a tendency to do that anyway. And sometimes you almost need to apologize. Lord, I'm, I'm sorry I'm bringing this up again, but I really need your help, you know. Be not therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things you have need of before you ask him. So it's more like, Lord, you know, I really need your help today. I can't do this without you. I don't know what to do next. Lord, I need your guidance. Lord, I'm in pain. I wish you would help me. I've been getting a lot of practice, at least in radiation. I probably get to go through this, this prayer four or five times. And unfortunately, I've discovered that neither one of the renditions in the New Testament are the prayer that I've been praying. So whether or not I've been praying the Lord's Prayer or not, I don't know. Uh, apparently, I've been praying the uh, from the Book of Common Prayer from England, uh, unbeknownst to me. I actually thought I was praying a Catholic prayer, but apparently it wasn't the Catholic prayer either. It's from the Book of Common Prayer from uh, conservative uh, Englishman back in 16... Where did I put this date? 1662. Can you imagine that? 
Um, so this is it um, from Luke. And you notice in red are, are two Greek words. Interestingly enough, in Matthew, two different Greek words are used. Uh, and he said to them, when you pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done as in heaven, so on earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, properly translated. For we also will forgive everyone that is indebted, again, properly translated, to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's amazing how much Jesus can pack into a few sentences. There are seven requests in this. There's a salutation, and at the end of Matthew, there's a beautiful closing. Uh, Luke just goes on with teaching at the end. I'm going to share both of those with you, if I might. Um, Our Father, which art in heaven, is a salutation. Our Father speaks of his closeness. Heaven speaks of his distance. It separates from all the other fathers we've ever had. And it's a fascinating statement. When I googled uh, how many names there are in the Bible for God, it turns out no one agrees. What a surprise. Uh, the, the general consensus among uh, some of the conservative sites, the general consensus among the conservative sites that I looked at said there are 16 names for God in the Bible. But there are those that list 72, and I think they're just compilations of the 16 names shown in different orders. I don't know that. Uh, the point is here we don't address God as almighty almighty father or amazing God God when he wants his children to address him in prayer wants us to come to him and say father God wants to be known as your father that's really a beautiful statement our father which art in heaven now, it's the same address, really, that Jesus used in the garden just before he was crucified. He said, Abba, and that's Aramaic, pater, actually in the Greek, Abba, Father, Father, Father. Uh, people have said that Abba is better translated Daddy. What I'm reading, that's not true. Abba is better translated Father. Father, Abba, Pater, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what that will. That's, that's the essence of every prayer you should ever pray. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Uh, Paul also reminds us, and this is an interesting passage that has nothing to do with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Paul reminds us that because we are sons, sons in the general sense, sons and daughters, we get very hyped up that daughters isn't included, but the phrase weos in the Greek includes both male and female, unless the context demands otherwise. Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. When we were lost and in sin, we were under the same condemnation as the rest of the world. That is the law. But when the fullness of time was come, when God was ready, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. That is, he was fully human, and he kept the law. 
He came under the law. And his purpose was to redeem. Now, when we redeem, we were talking about some cans downstairs that I need to redeem. That means I give them back and, and they buy them back from me. To redeem means to buy back. And he came for the specific purpose of buying us back. Our sin put us in debt. And we'll get into that in just a minute. Our sin put us in debt. And, and the only way we could be bought back would be for someone to pay for the penalty of our sins, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Without Jesus Christ, God could not adopt us. He could not accept us. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, which we just saw as his son was crying in the garden, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then you're an heir of God through Christ. What a, what a beautiful passage. The reason that you who have received Jesus as your Savior and have received the full pardon of your sins because your sins were laid on Jesus at the cross and because His blood has cleansed you from those sins, you have the incredible authority to call God your Father because He is your adopted Father. That's just the introduction now to the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. Now, in this, somebody pointed this outline out that when Jesus, when Jesus, uh, how's it? Oh, yeah, you can read that fine. When Jesus uh, first uh, uttered this, I, I don't know if this, I don't know how he does this. <laughs> I, I don't know how he, with such clarity, puts something together in just seven phrases that encompasses so much in our lives. But the first three petitions have to do exclusively with God. Your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done. And interestingly enough, they occur in descending order. The height of his name, the kingdom coming to earth, his will being done on earth. So you almost see, you almost see in this a descending order. And yet, the remaining four petitions have to do with us. Give us our bread which is pretty low. I mean, it's just food. Forgive us our debts. Well, that's a whole lot higher. Lead us not into temptation. That's even more important. And deliver us from evil. So where's the first three step down, you know? And you could almost say four and four if you start off with our Father who art in heaven. So you could actually see we're, we're actually stepping down four times and we're stepping up four times. And yet, everybody, when they see this, they all agree that there are seven petitions. Well, there is one group that says there are six petitions, but we won't talk about them. Okay, the first three petitions that you look at uh, have to do exclusively with God. Hallowed be thy name. And the word there, hallowed, is that be held in reverence, regarded and treated as holy everywhere you look in scriptures, beginning to end. It teaches us that we must use a proper response, a proper tone, a proper sense of loyalty and respectability when we speak God's name. It's never to be used in vain. The careless and offensive way the world treats God's name indicates their hatred for God. And every time they use his name inappropriately, every time we fall into that trap, we express the world's hatred for God. And our careful and respectful use of his name must always speak of our reverence for him. 
Jameson Fawcett Brown writes, too much attention cannot be paid to this. You, know, you can't emphasize this enough. The second petition is, thy kingdom come. And you'll see the Greek word there, uh, basilia, royal power, kingship, dominion, and rule. Now, you determine the definition that's being used by the context. I feel like this is drooping a little. And the context determines it, and the context here is probably all of the above. Your royal power, your kingship, your dominion, and your rule. Somebody noted that when the first believer on earth was saved, would be Adam and Eve, I hope, uh, God's kingdom did in fact come to a fallen earth in their hearts. They were representatives from the start. Every, every uh, pre-flood person that believed, every post-flood person that was attempting to be faithful, every Jew that was a believer were representatives of God's kingdom on the earth. And certainly when Jesus came, so then you ask the question, why, why would you say thy kingdom come? And then when Jesus came, certainly, you know, the kingdom has come. The, the kingdom in Christ was there, and Jesus Christ came in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you, 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 can't, you can't deny the fact that in the Holy Spirit, the kingdom was at hand. That's what Jesus would say. Tell them that the kingdom is at hand. It's right here. All you have to do is receive it. That's one of the strangest things about God's kingdom is it's in us, it's spirit. And it's right there. You can walk around in darkness your whole life unaware until such a time as I did on that bed in 1972 and said, God, is this true? That you killed your son? that my sins would be forgiven. And I said, if this is true, see, how far did I have to go to find the kingdom? That's all I had to do. It was right there. That's what Jesus said. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's right in front of your hands. It's right there. Just reach out and take it. And I said, Lord, if this is true, if this is true, not exactly a paragon of faith, but if this is true, let it be true for me. It's at hand. But I believe this petition looks, for, looks more forward than that. Although thy kingdom come is a prayer, it's a request. It's a petition that God's kingdom would continue to be available to all of us here on the earth. But I think it's more than that. I think it's looking forward to a time when God's kingdom alone will reign on the earth. God's kingdom alone, no more sin. It hints at the fact that we are all not yet in the world we're supposed to be in, and it looks to a time of the glorious consummation when God will rule the entire earth, and that is coming. But it's not going to be in the millennium. You know, we look forward to the millennium. We look forward to the rapture. We look forward to getting past the tribulation. We look forward to the thousand-year reign of Christ. But even then, sin will still be present in the human family. But after the millennium and after the great white throne judgment, after the final condemnation and death of sin, God's kingdom will once again reign on the earth. Now, as I pray this prayer, laying in that uh, radiation chamber, and I, I say, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. I see this. It's probably wrong, but I see this as my personal willingness to have God's kingdom reign in my life. See? I make it personal. 
And I, some people have said, well, this is just an outline. It may be. At one point, I outlined the Lord's Prayer. I put it up. I can never memorize it. Every time I get in front of people and go to recite it, I get it all messed up. I don't know. I look at your faces and my mind goes, you know, I don't know what that is. But uh, I outlined it, you know, and, you know, you, you, it, it's, it's praise and it's a request. And I have this outline of all what the, it is. And I never thought about just memorizing it and reciting it because it didn't, didn't make sense to me. It had to be personalized. And for me, when I say thy kingdom come, I mean I want your kingdom to take full control and reign in my heart. Thy will be done. As in heaven, so also in earth, Luke adds, as it is in heaven. The book of common prayer reads, Thy will be done. Now there's a verb there. I've talked about this verb a lot. Again, it came into being, see. But this isn't coming into being. It's coming... It's coming in power. Thy will come into being on earth as it is in heaven. Imagine, if you will, a world where the entire world, animal kingdom, the insect kingdom, I wonder what happens when a mosquito does the will of God. Imagine the entire universe surrendering to the will of God and you can begin to understand what well, you can't understand it at all, but you can begin to grasp at it in a science fiction sort of way what the eternity future might look like. Because that's what it promises. One will, God's will. Doing God's will will be as easy and as natural as breathing in eternity future. There won't be any of this temptations to do wrong or wishing I could do something else. There'll be none of this. His will and our will will become one. Prophecy indicates that it will be that way in eternity future. Well, that's the first three from God. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. And now we begin to get selfish. Give us this day our daily bread. You know, uh, you see the literal translation under it. The bread of us daily. Give us two each day. I've read where people say this must be a request for spiritual bread because to ask for bread or in my case, donuts, is just too low a request, you know. But I agree with those that see this as a request for the basic needs of my life. I don't think there's anything unspiritual or inappropriate for me asking God to provide the needs for myself and my family. I think that's what he wants. I could be wrong. Somebody wrote, and I, I didn't reference his name, one of our sweetest privileges is to cast all our bodily necessities in this short prayer by one simple petition upon our heavenly father and for me to know that i'm not in this alone is very important as i raise a family and i have these responsibilities on me and sometimes things go right and you have money and sometimes things go wrong and you don't have any money it's nice to know you're not alone you're in this with someone And one of the main characteristics that I noticed when I first became a believer, when God the Holy Spirit, see, I said, if this is true, please forgive me of my sin and come into my heart. And when the Holy Spirit first moved into my heart, the first thing that I noticed was I was no longer alone. And ever since August 1972, I've not been alone. We're in this together. And that's the beauty of this prayer. Give us this day 
our daily bread. I'm relying on you for every aspect of my life, even as mundane as my food. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, we're not there yet. At the rate I'm going, we're never going to be there. But in Luke chapter 12, he said, fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Don't have to earn it. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He looks forward to this partnership with us. He doesn't resent it. He doesn't resent our prayers. He looks forward to us. The fifth petition is, and forgive us our sins. Now this time the word is hamartia, hamartano. It's pronounced, there's a lot of, if you know anything about Greek, you know there's a lot of endings. This word is hamartia. And it has a lot of definitions, and I put a few of them up there. If, if I put them all up there, we'd need about four slides to cover it, or you wouldn't be able to read it. An interesting word for hamartia, but I've always used the one to miss the mark. Somebody years ago said, I think it was Billy Graham said, think of an archer and sin is firing your arrow at a target and having it fall short. Paul said, for all of sin and come short. That's, that's the, the literal definition of the word. To fire an arrow at a target and miss your mark. To err, to be mistaken, to wander from the path of uprightness. To wander from the law of God, to violate God's law, to sin. And forgive us our sins. It's vitally important that we view sin as an offense against God that leaves us in a debt. Paul, uh, Paul Luke will, will pick up on that in the next phrase. When we get caught in sin, our first reaction is to think, oh, I feel sick to my stomach. Oh, they know what I did. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble. We don't usually think when we first get caught in a sin, we don't usually think about the offense that that sin is to God. But every sin is an offense to God that leaves us in a debt. And, and if you wonder why Matthew, Jesus in Matthew, is quoted as using the word for debts, and he does in both instances, and why the second half of this, and forgive, as we forgive those who trespass against this book of common prayer, can't get away from it, but we also forgive everyone, Luke, that is indebted, indebted to us. The point is, our every sin, our every mistake, compiles a debt to God and to our fellow man. An interesting thought, if you think about it. And it's only in Christ that we find our debt paid and the balance sheet resolved. Now, you know, uh, when you read about Jesus' death on the cross, as he hung on that cross, his last words were, Te telestai. Translated, it is finished. Te telestai. Last word. And yet, if you study that word, you find that the word also means paid in full. Past, present, and future eternal God paid the debt for lost mankind that anyone that would look on him could receive him as their Savior. That debt to God must be forgiven. That debt must be discharged or we face the wrath of Almighty God and forgive us our sins. Book of Common Prayer as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
Where did they get that word trespass from? It's not even in the Bible. Well, it is. It's just not in the Lord's Prayer. Well, we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. That's the literal translation of Luke, and that's proper. Jesus went on to say in Matthew, am I right? Yeah, in Matthew. When he finished this teaching on the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, he said these words, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Whoa, dude. That's pretty serious. Jameson Fawcett Brown writes, no one can reasonably imagine himself to be the object of divine forgiveness who is deliberately and habitually unforgiving towards his fellow man. Jesus made many parables about this. So much stress does our Lord poured upon this in Matthew chapter 6 that these, this verse that's in front of you now, he spoke immediately at the close of his teaching of the Lord's Supper in Matthew, I'm sorry, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. So when you think about the word, Matthew uses debt and debt. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Debt and debt. He uses that word debt and debt in the Greek. But when Jesus interprets it, Jesus uses the word trespasses. Now, our sins produce a debt because we trespassed against God. So there's, there's, whereas it's not a literal interpretation in the Book of Common Prayer from 16, whatever it was, 1620. It's a reasonable interpretation of the word hamartia to say trespasses because we have trespassed the boundaries that God has set for us. I find that interesting. I hope you do too. Now we're, we're moving up in our request. Maybe you could say from the simplest to the more difficult, although is it easier for God to forgive sin than the fetus? Brad, Jesus asked that question. Is it easier for me to say to this man, thy sins be forgiven, than to say this man rise up and walk? Which is easier? I, I think the proper answer is one's not easier than the other. I think it's just as hard because it's impossible for me to say to you, your sins have been forgiven. It's absurd for me to say to you because I have no ability to forgive your sins. It's also absurd for me to say to you as a cripple, rise up and walk. I have no power to do that. But Jesus did. Of course, that's the point. And lead us not into temptation. Very literal translation of the Greek. But what is the temptation? Boy, you, there's another one where you could fill hours studying the word. I, it was amazing. I started this on Monday, and, and the digger, deeper I dug, the more I realized I was way over my head. What, what are we talking? Three verses here, and I can't handle it, you know. It, the, temptation, all right. Just, what did I put up there for you? Nothing. Good. <laughs> No, you know, they, they deal with primary, how the word is used primarily and then how it's used in other contexts. Primarily, the word is used as a trial, a testing, a trial made of my bodily condition. Paul talks about his eyes being, being a test. It means a trial of our faithfulness, our integrity, our virtue, our constancy, an outward enticement to sin, the temptation by which the devil sought to divert Jesus. It's used in a lapse of faith and holiness. It's used in situations of adversity, affliction, and trouble. So basically it means anything bad. If something bad's happening in your life, it's a temptation. You got that? 
If there's something that's causing you to think, oh my, I don't know if I can get through this. If you're trying to think, oh my, I don't know if I have enough faith to get through this. I don't, I don't know if I have the strength. Now we know that God is not in the business of tempting us to sin. So when it says, and lead us not into temptation, we're not saying, Lord, don't, don't, don't get me in trouble. I don't think we're saying that at all. But I think what we're saying is, Lord, I have gotten myself in trouble so many different ways and done so many things wrong and failed so many times. I really would ask your divine protection from those things that would cause me to stumble. Lord, watch over me. Keep me from failing you again. I believe it is a request for his strength, divine insight, and divine protection in a world that seeks to destroy us. You know, I haven't spoken for a long time about Norman Grubb. Norman Grubb was a, my, my pastor in Memphis called him a, a theologian before his time. Uh, I guess the next thousand years will prove that true or not. But he said, one of the things God is interested in our lives is that we would be safe sons and daughters. Safe. That he could put us in any situation. Even those situations that we used to stumble in. He can put us in any situation and he can trust us to fail fairly and properly represent his son, Jesus Christ. So if you're wondering why you're going through trials and difficulties and problems, understand God is developing the character of trustworthiness in you so that others will see Christ and not your weaknesses. Understand, he wants you to be a safe son or a daughter, or he can put you in any challenge and you will not fail him. He is building character in you. Now, some see this but delivers from evil as a continuation of the first, but it doesn't seem to be to me when the time comes that we are in fact caught, when we are in fact trapped or overcome or beaten down. Please, Heavenly Father, draw us to yourself. That word, deliver us, I like that word. That's why I put up there. Rule my. It says to draw to oneself to rescue or deliver. Lord, when I find myself in a snare that I cannot get myself out of, please, Lord, draw me to yourself. Just before Paul died, you realize he was in a dungeon. He was waiting to have his head chopped off. And he wrote to Timothy and he said, and the Lord shall deliver me. The Lord will draw me to himself from every evil work and will preserve me into his heavenly kingdom. Second Timothy chapter four. The final petition then is only rightly grasped when regarded as a prayer for deliverance from an evil of whatever kind. Not only from sin, but from all its consequences, fully and finally. Fitly, then, are our prayers ended with this, for what can we desire which does not carry with it this promise. Now Matthew ends this prayer in chapter, do I have it up here? I do have it up here. Let me get it up here for you. He ends his prayer, for, thy, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And there's a huge debate about whether that belongs in the Bible. About half of the manuscripts have it. Half of the manuscripts don't. We don't know why that is, but very few manuscripts before 200 A.D. have this closing statement. So we could say it's not found in the oldest manuscripts, but it's true. It's true beyond question. 
and it's beautiful. So if it is an editorial edition by one of the second century scribes, he might have been reading the prayer and just got carried away. I don't know. I don't think it's a mistake. It's too beautiful. I love that ending. So I think the Holy Spirit intends it to be there. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Its majesty and its beauty exhibit an unquestionable truth and brings honor to whom it's intended. Now, our boy Luke is more of a workman than that, and he loves just going on and on about one thing after the next thing. After. You can't, you know, I can't begin to do one chapter. You know, I'd like to do one chapter a week. I can't get close to it. He just puts so much in there. And there's this little story in between, but I'm skipping to verse 9 because I think that's the summary of the story without getting into the complexity of it. So Luke ends it with these words uh, as he closes out the Lord's Prayer. And I say unto you, now, in all fairness to you, if you have a red letter, letter Bible, I should have said Luke ends this with black ink, and I should have put, and I say unto you, in red ink, if you're used to a red letter Bible. Uh, this is Jesus saying, this is the Son of God who died for our sins, whose name, it says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, whose name we call upon for our salvation, saying these words. It's a powerful statement if you think about it. And I say unto you, this is the Son of God, I, the Son of God, co-equal with the Father, Second person of the Trinity say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Now, I don't know about that word seek. I, I didn't do any word studies on this passage. But I think seek means you've got to ask more than once. Don't you? If you're seeking. Seek, seek and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh, it shall be open. I can tell you, I knocked August of 1972, and God changed my life forever. I did nothing. God did it all. He's the one that deserves the praise. Father, our prayer is that there's not one soul in this congregation that does not understand this passage. Our prayer is there's not one soul in this congregation that has not received Christ as their Savior. Our prayer is, Lord, that no one would leave here without knowing your son, Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Amen.